Welcome to another information session from the California Special Needs Law Group. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and I have an 18, well, almost 18-year-old son with autism. You notice your child is not performing in school as well as his or her peers, perhaps, and you begin to think, is something going on? So it's at this point that you or maybe an educator might suggest that an assessment be given. My wife and I remember, very much remember, when this happened. We also remember that we ended up having a ton of questions. Things like, what are all these assessments about? What will it tell me? Who gives them? Will I be able to understand what is in this report they're going to give me? Can I trust that it is being done properly? Or should I look for an outside opinion as well? In today's show, I talk again with educational psychologist Dr. Perry Passaro. We address all those questions and more. Listen in as we pull back some of the curtain behind what assessments are all about. And as a quick program note, if you haven't heard our earlier discussion on cognitive behavioral therapy, also known as CBT, check out the website and make sure to listen to that as well. He is an awesome person to have in an interview. All right, here we go. Dr. Perry Passaro, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's great to have you back. We had a great time talking about CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, last time. And this time, we're going to talk all about assessments. And assessments, like, so as a father to a child with special needs, I was hit up with the suggestion that my child needed some assessments back when he was like two, two and a half years old. And that can bring a lot of fear to people. It's kind of like, oh, no, something's wrong with my beautiful child. But what do you think we should be thinking instead when a suggestion of an assessment is given to us? Sure. Well, I I think that that's natural, Mike, that that parents would be afraid um, because it's, it's really the unknown. And the hope would be understanding that what the assessment is going to do is try to uh, approach the unknown, to really look at uh, learning more and finding out what we, what we don't know, what we need to know. Because once we are able to really do a good thorough evaluation or a good thorough assessment, um, the terms are often used interchangeably, then it can provide us diagnostic and prescriptive information to better help the child. Mm-hmm. And, and so if we can really approach it from that standpoint of we just need to learn more so that we can uh, be more proactive in helping. All right. So I, I'm, say, sure, let's do an assessment. What does that mean? Like, what's an assessment look like to me as a parent and in the eyes of a child? What's it like for them? Sure. It's an overwhelming process, really. Um, And because it takes a lot of time, depending upon the age of the child. But any child that's of school age, say five to six years and older, it's a process that is going to take five or six hours of the child's time in a seat. Uh, going through the evaluation, it's a lot. And um, as kids get older, it can take even more time. So it's a very extensive process. It also involves um, reviewing records, uh, interviewing teachers, interviewing the parents, observing the child at school. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a really involved process. It can take uh, uh, really uh, a, a lot of time to do. But it's because of the time and because of the depth of the, of the evaluation instruments themselves, as well as all the other information that's collected by people who know the child, the child's teacher, the parents, 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we get a really good picture because what you're really looking for when you sit down with parents and, and go over the results, what you hope happens is that the parents say, yes, what you're telling me describes the things that I've seen uh-huh. in my child. And, and so this, this fits. And now you're telling me why I'm seeing these things and then also what we need to do. All right. So, you know, when you first start doing these assessments and you mentioned the amount of time, five or more hours that it takes, do you, after you have experience, as much experience as you have, for example, do you find yourself being surprised still or can you pretty much kind of figure a, a child out uh, pretty quickly and then the additional time confirms it? How does that work? Well, you know, it's a great question. Um, I think that uh, I, I've been doing this now since 1989, and I'm still surprised uh, at times. I mean, certainly okay. there are some things that you see that are relatively consistent, but every every kid is unique. And, and so um, we often um, um, see things that are quite unusual. And in our practice, we often evaluate uh, students and children that, that have been evaluated before. It's, it's relatively rare that we do new evaluations. Oh, okay. It's usually kids who've been evaluated and yet, um, uh, there's an agreement between parents and then often school districts that even though we've done an evaluation, we don't really feel we know exactly what's going on here. And we'd like a second opinion. Uh, and so we do lots of evaluations for uh, for kids that have been looked at, and there's still some questions. So it's it's very uh, interesting work in regard to trying to uh, identify uh, uh, what what uh, what the issues really are and how to really help. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because there is the differences between there's the school district does an assessment and then private assessments, which is what you're talking about. So typically, though, and correct me if I'm wrong, the first assessment is done through the school district. And if that's the case, who in the school district does that before you might move on to a private uh, assessment? Sure. So this in the school districts, the evaluations are done by school psychologists. They are... Um, people that uh, generally have a master's degree or perhaps a doctoral degree. Their training is really very much geared towards the administration of uh, the type of testing instruments that are used in these evaluations. And so uh, there is often other members of a team if, if there are concerns. So there may be a speech and language therapist involved. There may be an occupational therapist involved. There may be a school nurse involved. Uh, in the assessments as well. And then generally there is a special education teacher that's involved in administering the academics. And so these people that do the assessments, then you're saying they aren't therapists, they're mostly just doing assessments. That's their role. They're, they're really, uh, yes, their primary role is really uh, in their primary training. And I know this because I was a school psychologist, right. so I know what the training is. And I also taught school psychologists. So Again, I know what the level of training tends to be. So it tends to be focused more uh, on uh, psychometrics, the ability to administer uh, these instruments and to interpret them uh, for the purpose of identifying whether a child has a disabling condition. 
All right. So when I get an assessment, or I can imagine any parent when they have an assessment, especially if it's something that you don't want to hear or don't appreciate hearing, you might second guess it. So how reliable do you feel these assessments are, especially the first one that's given? As a parent, should I be accepting of what I hear? Well, I think that it depends on a few uh, factors. One is the age of the child. If the child's being evaluated um, before age five, then what we know is that the results can be uh, unreliable. That, that, that may not be a really accurate picture of the child. So uh, that's one thing to consider. The other thing is that the older the child is, generally the more reliable and valid the instruments are. But oh. the thing that, that is important is it goes back to something that I mentioned before. When you sit down to go over the report with the parents, mm-hmm. if the report and the findings are not lining up with the parents' experience from the child, then there's clearly a problem. And that's when parents ask for these second opinion or uh, uh, evaluations, which are called IEEs for independent educational evaluations. When they sit there and it's just, this just isn't connecting with them. This is not what we see. This is not how we uh, understand our child. That's certainly one of those, uh, um, uh, you know, really red lights that, that indicate, you know, we need to take another look at this. Okay, so that's yeah, that's something I wondered about. So what? At what? That's at the point. It sounds like that I should then take it as a parent to go and ask for or pay for or whatever an independent assessment. And from your point of view, how often do you, uh, in your assessment, perhaps disagree with what the district assessment is? That common or uncommon? Well, I think that it's um, it's it's common that I'll disagree with the evaluations that are done by the districts. Sometimes uh, the disagreement is about um, the interpretation of the tests. Okay. Uh, it may not be it may not be the tests that are given or how they were administered or how they were scored, but how they were interpreted. So I'll often disagree with interpretation, and interpretation, of course, opens the door to treatment. So if if one interpretation is very narrow, say, and it's and it indicates that, uh, you know, generally the child doesn't need any help, for example, academically. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my view might be, well, when I look at it uh, a little differently and say, well, if we look at these specifics, look at the variance between some of these measures, it does indicate that, you know, that there needs to be help. And so um, it's not uncommon at all for, for my interpretations to be different. And then uh, that really, you know, begins the dialogue about uh, what, you know, really reconsidering perhaps uh, uh, prior interpretations and conclusions. What I, I wonder a little bit about, let's say, bias here. So within interpretation of the results, you have a therapist or a private therapist on one side who perhaps is biased to more intervention, and then you might have a school district psychologist on the other side who might be biased away from intervention because that has an impact on uh, caseloads and workloads for the district itself. Do you think that plays a role in how tests are interpreted on either side? Well, I think it's a really good question, and, and I've worked on both sides of that question. And, and I think that um, it, I, I think it's a great question, but I think it's actually a little bit different. Okay. My experience, when I was trained as a school psychologist, the training is aligned to educational code. And so 
in the educational code, it's, it's really almost a formula for who gets services and who doesn't. So you look at specific numbers, you compare the numbers, it's like an algebra equation, and you, and you balance the sides, you come up with your answer, and then you sit down and go, oh yeah, the numbers don't line up. So it's, it's very ob- objective. That's the way the ed code has been written. And so the way people tend to, in my experience, interpret data um, that they collect in the school is that they, they, they plug it into the formula. And if the formula mm-hmm. says no, then it's like, no. Now, from a clinical standpoint, people that tend to be in private practice, people that have been trained in a more clinical way, they don't think in that formula. They think about what does the child need? I'm not really concerned what, you know, as much about the numbers as that, or the discrepancy between numbers. The overall findings and does this child need services? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, it's really a difference in thinking from an ed code standpoint to a more clinical standpoint. And I think that's where, that's where we see disagreements between private evaluations and public evaluations is, is really an orientation and philosophy um, uh, as opposed to uh, people just not wanting to, you know, to do the work. So I, I for example, I was um, part of an IP meeting earlier today mm-hmm. and it was a very, very friendly, very, you know, cordial meeting. And I had uh, been asked to write an independent evaluation and the district, you know, had agreed to it. And they were very um, open to what I had to say, and uh, and and so the. Uh, but one of the questions was, what's the proper uh, educational identification as far as eligibility for this child, which is important mm-hmm. to them in regard to their procedures? There were three areas that child, this child could have uh, qualified in. One was emotional disturbance. One was ADHD, attention deficit disorder, which would be classified as other health impairment, and a specific learning disability. And so from a clinical standpoint, I really saw the uh, emotional disturbance as really probably the most important thing impacting this child's life. The school district staff saw much less of the emotional disturbance because it's much more of an internalizing disorder in this child. So this is not a child who's acting out. But it's a child who has a depressive disorder. And so, but they see very little evidence of that through medication and therapy. Mm -hmm. The child presents well. So their view was that in an educational setting, what we're seeing is the problem is ADHD and the learning disability. So so it gives you uh, a way to kind of conceptualize the question, I think, Mike, in that that the world is a perceived event and, Mm -hmm. and in the school setting, Things are being perceived in a certain way, and they're perceived in a different way in a clinical setting. And so um, what really has to happen is that if we have people that are, that are open you know, to discussion and dialogue, I was able to absolutely, because, um, because we had conducted an observation of the child and we had lots of teacher data that indicated they weren't seeing the depression, but they were certainly seeing the learning disability and the attentional issues, you can understand the world from their perspective because without the clinical information, um, they wouldn't have even known about the depressive disorder. So uh, it's, it's really a matter of perspectives and, and really trying to get people to, 
to come together with a shared understanding so that we can really move forward in a cooperative and constructive way. Okay, that's interesting. And it's especially interesting in light of the fact that you've worked on both sides of the fence, so to speak, with this. And, and one, one thing I was wondering about, like, so uh, when we worked, my wife and I worked with our son's teachers and psychiatrists and all that, we had a really strong relationship with them. And that was important to us because on the day to day, we want them to see our child as having a family that supports them. So how much conflict do you think it triggers if, let's say, I at that time had said, you know what, I don't agree with the evaluation. I'm going to go get an independent one and maybe advocate for the district to pay for it or whatever. When you then later meet with those professionals, are the IEP meetings as good as the one you talked about this morning? Or do I risk creating a conflict environment versus a collaboration environment when I ask for more assessments? It's a great question. And that's exactly this meeting was the result of exactly that. The, the parents had disagreed with the school's evaluation. They were very concerned with the child's academic progress and, um, and whether the school was really doing the right thing or not. And there was an advocate and an attorney involved in the case. And so, um, but I think as a parent, you, you know, you have to be your child's advocate. If you really feel that, um, uh, if you really question, you know, the services and the findings of the school, Mm-hmm. you have to be able to uh, to question that and okay. and if the if the personnel from the school are going to take that personally then honestly that's unfortunate but that's their problem um they have to understand and this is the this is the difference in regard to clinical training and educational training in clinical training the child is the client and everything is about the child in a clinical setting. That's, okay. that's how you're trained. Uh-huh. In an educational setting, you're not trained that way. You're trained to follow the procedures and the protocol. And, and so people will disagree with that. I know that, that, are, edu- that are working in education will say, no, that's not true. We're, we're child-centered. That's not, that's not necessarily the case because if that were true, then we wouldn't have formulas for determining who qualifies and who doesn't. We would do it in a much more clinical way, which is here, there's clear evidence of a problem here. We need to serve in this area. Um, not that, oh, well, you know, there's a problem, but it doesn't match these numbers. So sorry, we're not going to serve you. That's not a child-centered or a clinical approach. Okay, I see. I wanted to turn a little bit to cost. So let's say I do decide to get an external assessment. What's it typically cost, and how likely is it that the district will reimburse me for that cost? Because I imagine this would have a significant impact on people who are low income on whether or not they can actually get an assessment that their child may very well need. Absolutely. Well, I think the first step is that always presenting a case that uh, that not only do you disagree with the district's evaluation, but why. So if you present uh-huh. a case to them that really demonstrates, here's why we disagree, then that opens the door to the district paying for the evaluation. That's, that's really uh, the best way to go about it, is really being able to, to document why you disagree, why you need an independent evaluation, and asking that they do that. Okay. And and so if they agree, then that's, that's certainly the, the best way. And that was what happened in the case that I was talking about today. Um, if the district disagrees, then unfortunately, uh, this, because it's such a time-consuming process, it's an expensive process. These evaluations can you know, run 
generally in the four to six thousand dollar range. Oh, okay. Um, it, it's it's a very very expensive evaluation, and that's why uh, we definitely want to uh, continue that collaboration to be able to get the district to to agree to pay for that. Because when they agree to pay for that, it it indicates generally a willingness on their part to at least consider an, an alternative interpretation if that if that turns out to be true. Okay. And you know, you mentioned the the four to six thousand dollars, but in the assessment itself you mentioned earlier it takes four, four or five hours, but there's time afterwards, of course, then to write everything up and put it together, right? There's there's a lot of other time involved interviews, observations, IEP attendance. Uh, writing the report, absolutely. So, um, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a process that you know generally takes eighteen to nineteen hours of time, and then various people charge various uh, fees. Um, I, I think you know probably the highest fees that you tend to find are, are, are around six thousand. I think the lowest are around four, and I would say average is probably five. Okay. So what do you wish parents understood about assessments, uh, but they usually do not? Like if you could just give a, if you gave a talk about assessments, I guess what we're doing here, what would be the things you would tell parents? Hey, mm-hmm. parents, you should understand this part of assessments before you ever do them or during or whatever. Sure. Absolutely. The, the assessments are very um, uh, quantitative, uh, particularly uh, the ones that are done in the school district, a lot of quantitative data. It's very hard for someone who's not a professional in the area to understand when they're given a report at an IEP meeting uh, that is their initial. They've asked for an evaluation, and here's the evaluation, and the team goes over it. My experience is that rarely, when I sit down with families, do they understand what was presented to them in that report because there's so much numeric data involved. It's all statistical modeling. And unless you're someone that has a real strong background in probability and statistics and norm reference testing, it's, it's in particular, you're in this meeting with a lot of people. It's usually mm-hmm. a one hour, maybe a two hour meeting. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to understand all that. And you don't even know what questions to ask in regard to the psychometrics. Some people I know try to do a good job and explain that. But even though they're explaining it, it's almost it's sort of like when you're when you when you uh, buy a car and, and they're going through all the paperwork with you, you don't really understand any of that. They're going, oh, sign here. This means that, that. <laughs> it, it's really uh, it, it's really I think for parents, it's like that process. And and um, uh, so I think that in answer to your question, what is it that I wish they knew? Certainly, I would want them to understand much more about how the numbers work so that they are not as lost in this in this quantitative uh, discussion that's going to occur because they're just mm-hmm. going to be hit with lots of numbers in these meetings, um, which I think just overwhelms people. Yeah, I can imagine. Huh. Okay, let's go on to... So we spend time... We try to spend... Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I was just going to say that what we try to do is spend some time really... Uh, making sure that people understand even the, the the prior report. So we'll start off by meeting with parents and, and reviewing the records and then sitting down to talk with them at the initial interview. And I'll ask them, uh, 
did you understand, you know, the report that was provided to you? And, and most times the parents will look at each other and, and, and then look at me and go, no, we really didn't get a whole lot out of that. We just understood uh. their conclusion, which was my child didn't qualify, but we're really not even sure why. Uh, okay. Especially if they don't qualify versus qualify. That's a big difference. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're getting towards the end here. I want to ask you a final question. Like, so when you sure. meet with, after the assessments, you know, you have that meeting where you come together with the parents and how do you see parents typically react to whatever suggestion or diagnosis or therapy that you, you give or present at that time? Well, I think sometimes it's very, um, helpful and enlightening to them that, you know, it, it really allows them to connect what they're seeing. Like, well, my son can't read, but I don't know why he can't read. And the school's telling me that his reading's not that bad. But now what you're telling me is that he has this phonological dyslexia and that he's not hearing sounds properly. And that's why he can't decode words. And then you're telling me that this particular reading program is going to help him to do that. So in those cases, um, I think uh, families feel uh, very uh, optimistic about the findings. Okay, good. I think I think there are cases, obviously, where sometimes, um, unfortunately, parents are given uh, information that confirms uh, sad news. Uh, you know, particularly when there are questions about a child's cognitive ability. Maybe a district evaluation says that the child has uh, an intellectual disability, and then parents come in and ask for an independent evaluation, and rightfully so, because that's obviously a very significant. Mm-hmm. Um, Concern, and then when uh, when a, a private evaluation confirms the findings, I think um, it's um, it's it's hard, but uh, it helps them to move towards acceptance. Okay, well, Dr. Perry Pissarro, thank you so much for all your information yet again today. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. It was great talking with you. Thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to an audio information session brought to you by California Special Needs Law Group. It's part of our vision of facilitating a full life for individuals and families with exceptional needs. For more information about us and for further audio interviews as well as written and video, check us out on the web at csnlg.com. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you.